This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... RPG sports. Life without maps. Word clusters. And a disappearing airman. Cards and Commissars is a clever card game of glorious robot revolution where players control the means of production. It's from Atlas Games, the publisher of hits like Gloom and Once Upon a Time. The standard edition of Cards and Commissars is in stores now, but there are also a limited number of deluxe editions left over from the Kickstarter. This most equal apparatchik edition features wood screen-printed citizen tokens, neoprene mats for each faction leader, and a foil-stamped spot-gloss magnetic closure box. The deluxe edition is only available direct from Atlas Games while supplies last. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or satirical Soviet robots, Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to buy immediately. To order, visit atlas-games.com slash cogsdeluxe. Or follow the link in the show notes. As Lennon once said, the capitalist will sell you the rope you use to hang him in the form of a beautiful collector's edition board game. For the motherboard! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the crowd coming, screaming to its feet as an enormous holographic presentation of Peter Frampton coming alive pours down from the stadium roof, welcomes us to the future gaming hot, 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 hot. <laughs> because here, we're looking into the future of eSports as it might be done in a world of streaming and LARPs. Uh, Robin, you are uh, uh, perhaps uncharacteristically uh, sportive in mood. Was it the less than super Super Bowl that appealed to your Canadian sensibilities and called upon you? You said, gosh, if the Super Bowl could be this placid, surely I, Robin Laws, can discuss sports. Yes. Well, uh, here's all of my sports talk. Uh, the, uh, the Great Cup is always more interesting than the Super Bowl. Uh, now on to our subject. <laughs> and, uh, no truer than this year. Anyway, yes, on the subject. Right. Uh, so actually what inspired this was seeing, uh, what, uh, the folks at Critical Role have been getting up to lately. There have been some screen, uh, screenshots or digital photos, I guess, of, uh, people out in the woods, uh, with special effects. <laughs> what? And, uh, yeah. And, uh, it's, oh, wait a minute. This is, it looks like this weird evolution from tabletop role-playing to watching a tabletop role-playing game is merging into something heretofore unknown, like uh, a LARP or even, what, a television show? And uh, Madness. N- now that we're seeing various, uh, you know, you can watch Deborah Ann Wall run her uh, her game uh, streamed live, and, you know, many other celebrities are coming out of the closet as uh, as role players, there's uh, the Harmon Quest uh, show that animates uh, people playing D and uh, There's uh, uh, Nerd Poker, which is a, a podcast with Brian Cosain and a bunch of his uh, uh, fellow uh, comedians playing D and D. And so, uh, what is the next step of all of this? What exists? And this is near future in the sense that nobody has yet done this, but it's sort of amazing when you think about it why they haven't. Uh, people watch. Uh, video games played as a sport and there's, uh, uh, even money in it. 
And also we have this thing called reality television where some of them are very close to already kind of being LARPs, like Survivor right. essentially is, is a LARP with the chances of being infected by a parasite. And so like all LARPs, really like all LARPs. Um, so it is really, there's nothing that we're about to describe that couldn't be announced tomorrow. And, uh, you know, so, uh, call us Hollywood, but I can very easily envision the continuing convergence of streaming gameplay into something that is basically watching a, a LARP, possibly a celebrity LARP played live and shot and covered like a sporting event. So we can all now imagine what this would be. It would be kind of a long program. It would probably be, uh, you know, as, what, as long as a football game or, or what have you with, with more interesting elves and magic items and, uh, uh, people backstabbing and, and backstories justifying the backstabbing. So, uh, Ken, what do you think? What comes to mind when I uh, throw all of these ideas out for you? I mean, when, when you look at this, uh, obviously, you know, you shout out to the people who, who saw it happening way before 1981 novel Dream Park by Larry Niven and Stephen Barnes, which basically was exactly this, that, uh, there would be a LARP with big, uh, Disney quality special effects, uh, for the, uh, players and that people would watch it on their computer screens all around the world and bet on the outcome and, uh, all manner of, uh, a whole social structure would be in place to support it, just like there is for sports or for uh, TV shows now. It's not impossible that a dream park thing could happen tomorrow if Disney decided instead of build a, a theme park devoted to Avatar, they would build a, a LARP ground and start running it with uh, high-profile Disney stars. You know, Disney's got all those teen stars that are trying to put in front of people's faces. You know, whoever today's version of uh, Justin Timberlake and Vanessa Hudgens could be out tomorrow running around and trying to rescue the sphere of annihilation from somebody or or whatever it is. Uh, there, there could be any number of that. And that, again, is um, Disney has all the money and all the talent necessary to make that happen yesterday. The other, of course, uh, possible uh, swerve for this uh, has been foreseen by the tabletop role-playing game X-Crawl, which imagines dungeon delving as a competitive and possibly fixed uh, spectator sport so that you have your teams and you send them into the dungeon and you root for them. And so much of the game is about, are you throwing the match for some outside reason versus are you, you know, straight up dungeon delving? And the, in, the, the, the fun comes in sort of the ironic meta play between the notion that you're dungeon delving like you always dungeon delve and the notion that a, uh, second ring of spectators besides the players are also, uh, engaging with it in, in, in ways criminal and fun and interesting in the same way that you engage with professional wrestling, uh, not just in this country, but all over the world. So there's, uh, already been sort of two models for how this could happen, where you have the sort of larger than life, uh, science fictional, but with real fighting, uh, uh, wrestling. And then you could have a straight up imagineering system where the fighting is maybe not real at all is at the very best stage fighting, but that Disney imagineering uh, uses lasers and holograms so that when um, tween star uh, uh, Beth and tween star Rico face down, suddenly their giant um, uh, uh, computer generated avatars have a really great Basil Rathbone quality sword fight instead of seeing a, a couple of telegenic 14 year olds bash each other with uh, uh, boffer LARPs. Right. Right. And it wouldn't even necessarily have to be um, something to be super focused on, on combat, although you can very easily, you know, envision it dropping to a screen where there, you know, as you suggest, there's a computer animation uh, that 
uh, simulates what happens when those two characters fight. So you could do that. Certainly lots of mainstream uh, movie blockbusters end with, and now the computer animated characters fight. Yes. Uh, so, so you could certainly do that. You wouldn't even yeah. need to build a park, really. You would just build a, a big set with room for a lot of people to move around. Another way to envision this, though, would be more of the sort of diplomacy-oriented LARPs, like the the ones uh, that the, the free forms uh, that the, uh, the Glorantha community, among many others, uh, engage in, where it's more about uh, talking and negotiating and yeah sure there can be a little you know there's a fight or two but it's not uh you're all vampires you're not, but that's really not what this is about this is about you know the belgian tv rights or whatever exactly and so uh it could you could very easily just do you know a masquerade style larp with the okay and now uh deb brown wall is crossing her arms and of course those of us who follow this know that this means her character is turned invisible and so you would just have a lot of uh live uh, cameras moving through the scene and they could uh, focus in on different characters. And then you, uh, there would be some sort of mechanism where, uh, as, as one of the players, you just do, I want my, uh, secret talk with this character televised. And, uh, you know that I guess probably the easiest way to do it is, well, none of the other, uh, players can see anything that's on the monitors or anything. So they don't know what's happening. And then this is all, you know, cut together, um, later, but, you know, you, you could uh, imagine a color commentary where uh, everything's explained for the the viewer who needs to know. It's like Kristen Bell is playing the Red Princess. She does not know that as she approaches the crone, she's talking to an incarnation of her future self. And then you drop in, and then they show, uh, you know, the sort of improv scene and the negotiating back and forth. You could have, you know, overlays on the screen that provide you, uh, you know, bits and pieces from the big backstory kit that you get when you play a free form right. or their, or their character stats, if relevant in, in the same way that when you are playing TV poker, you can see their whole cards on little whole card cam. Yeah. And so this would be something that uh, would be relatively inexpensive to do. Really. If you, you know, you have a big old set with, that looks like a, uh, a, a castle or whatever, and then you have uh, makeup people and stuff to come in and do the groovy costumes. But other than that, it's like, you know, you've got a ton of footage that you uh, either cut together or cut between uh, live, and uh, the commitment for many of the performers is just to come in for uh, a day, basically, in order to uh, get into makeup and then play the game. And then here you are, and there's a, an audience watching it at home. And, of course, we live in a universe where there are Many, many, many channels with uh, they feel not enough stuff on them. Right. And uh, and many, many personalities who studios need to present in a inexpensive and uh, attractive fashion. And that's, you know, uh, whole branches of programming exist just so that we can fall in love with Selena Gomez. If we, Why not fall in love with Selena Gomez if she's an elf? That right. seems completely logical. And there's a whole audience that is primed for this who uh, are interested in a completely different pantheon of people who you and I can, I think, are essentially unaware of, which is all the mm-hmm. reality stars, right? There's right. whole reality show channels now. And so it's like the people cast have their of Van- favorite bachelor contestants and whatnot. Yeah. Your cast of Vanderpump rules uh, are, are all uh, come on and uh, engage in uh, a uh, extended uh, bit of diplomacy in, in the dying earth or... And of course, there's all sorts of, uh, IPs that the, all the big entertainment companies own. So, uh, one way to make this more accessible to the viewer is, uh, you know, this is a negotiation in the parliament in the Star Wars universe, or, you know, there's a traitor in the Federation. 
and uh, you can easily say, okay, here's here's the Star Wars LARP, here's the Star Trek LARP, and and uh, uh, so on and so forth. Yes, yes. Uh, do you dare to enter the Tomb of the Kardashians? <laughs> yes, that's that's an especially a dangerous tomb to enter. Very brightly lit, though. And so this is something that uh, I think the only reason it hasn't happened is that nobody has quite thought of it, but it seems inevitable to me that as uh, streaming becomes a bigger and bigger thing and, uh, you know, some of the gaming streams are getting uh, pretty close to kind of not mainstream, but uh, specialty cable channel yeah. numbers. I mean, you, you definitely have, I would say Critical Role definitely is pulling down as many viewers as... A, you know, uh, as a, as a show on a lot of those specialty channels do. Uh, I think towards the end of it, you know, girls may have had a smaller audience than Critical Role has now, for example. And, uh, you could easily see different, uh, if this exploded, different specialty channels could all find different ways to do, to fill their hours with LARP esport programming. So, you know, the Food Network, they could center it around a banquet and, uh, the, uh, instead of having the, uh, you know, quasi-fictional Iron Chef. You can go on to have a a fully fictional, you know, Tang Dynasty banquet where uh, you bring in uh, all, all sorts of people to uh, try and uh, curry favor with the Empress as uh, the uh, the history of uh, Chinese food is laid out before you. And uh, part of the part of the uh, contest is uh, you know cooking cooking the dish right, and part of it is engaging in, in intrigue. Mm-hmm. You just got to make sure you don't melt off your prosthetic makeup uh, if you're, you know, playing a a, a demon or or what have you. And and you can certainly see a lot of possible uh, drift over into, um, like I was saying about professional wrestling earlier, uh, LARPs where there is also just a physical component to it, where you actually have to win a buffer sword fight to advance in the LARP. That that's part of the game, and so all of your uh your your larp stars of the day have to be buff so that they can win a a a buff fight or at least be good enough at it to to uh, uh to to plausibly advance in the story that it's not just scripted or even based on your on your character stats that of course um Eleonora will beat uh uh Tarbavian because uh, her stats are better but Eleonora's uh, actor has to be able to uh, win a, a a sword fight to advance in a sort of a reality error version rather than a scripted error version of of these sorts of LARPs. And and again, uh, the question of scripting is not even necessarily scripting. It's a question of their character stats. And there can even be you know the randomizer comes up and you see the dice roll there at the top of the of the screen, just like you might see them on the on the table in front of you. So the element of the random event is a whole universe that I think. That is the thing that would be different from ongoing um, uh, television in that the randomizer has to be presented. And that's where the World Series of Poker uh, becomes present. Although, I guess, in theory, any sports event is got randomizers. It's just can, you know, Patrick Kane, you know, shoot a goal. His skill is X. The goalie's skill is X. He's at such and such a speed. It's just a very complex GURPS simulation that we, you know, see happen in microseconds. Right. So, uh, as you suggest, there could be different versions where... Uh, one iteration of this could be based on af- actual athleticism, in which case you'd, you know, draw people from, you know, martial arts and, uh, uh different, uh, fighting disciplines and, uh, it'd be nice. It'd be safer than MMA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, uh, you know, something, uh, more abstracted. And, and I think even, and I'm surprised that there isn't a, uh, maybe there is already and I just don't know. There, have you heard of there like being an escape room? A challenge where different celebrity teams are 
uh, put in an escape room and then uh, that that seems so obvious and so cheap that surely there has been celebrity escape room and it must be in its ninth season on you know stars yeah. or something i have i have no idea but it does seem super obvious this is time for everybody to call up there i'm surprised you didn't mention in case there isn't though call yeah, us hollywood we exactly. can make that happen um so that would certainly be a vehicle to um, make uh, gaming both even more mainstream and awareness and then to continue to morph it in a direction that I find personally surprising, which is from a, uh, interactive activity into something that is, uh, more passively consumed by an audience, uh, which is, you know, we're, we're already there. Um, and of course you can envision all sorts of ways in which the, uh, viewers at home for a live event, especially could, uh, have some determination over the narrative, right? That, uh, you could uh, have a screen that pops up and say, okay, well, this is the point in the complex negotiation where the Klingons attack and, uh, one of these, uh, bulkheads is going to collapse and, uh, you see where everybody's positioned. Okay. Audience at home vote on whether it's bulkhead A, B, C, or D that collapses. And then that introduces, uh, you know, it's essentially giving you the same control over the narrative that phoning into American Idol does. Um, except, yeah. uh, well, obviously there's a degree of separation there because you, you know, then everybody has to react to, you know, it's a, which delegation turns out to be, uh, the, the mole, right? That could be another right. one. You, you know, could, you could also have it where there's competing versions of it. And so like the American Cancer Society is the Klingons, but, um, uh, Walk for America is the Romulans or whatever. And whichever charity has raised enough, um, the most money in the uh, run up to the broadcast, that's the side that's going to win the negotiation be just because of, you know, they've got the most ships or whatever, but we don't know who it's going to be until it's revealed. But the way that you get everyone hyped up is, and they've all voted for their favorite faction in the, in the star Trek universe by giving money to their charity. And so, Oh, Oh my God, it's the amnesty international Tholians have come in and surprised us all. I, I think that, you know, at the telethon event, I mean, that that's yet another audience interactivity uh, thing that happens. Yeah. So, uh, it's full of possibility. It's full of possibility for uh, not only uh, people who are currently doing it to be phoned up by Hollywood, but also uh, for something that uh, once again uh, makes what we're uh, doing more uh, apparent and obvious to uh, to others. The way that you know uh, video games uh, began to make tabletop make more sense to people because it gave a much wider frame of reference for what it is that we're doing. Yep. Uh, but uh, just like a televised uh, LARP show, uh, it's time for us to break for a commercial message. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity. 
caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The spin of the compass rose and the weird twisty pattern that results when we uh, stand in the middle of a Mercator projection. Ow! Ow! Stop projecting! Tell us that we've once more wound up in that most geographical of huts, the Cartography Hut. And this time around, Patreon backer Jason Thompson says, What do you mean maps didn't exist in the Hellenistic era? Uh, this, of course, being a, a reference to our, our previous Cartography Hut. Is this true? Or did old maps just not survive to the modern day that much? Uh, Ken, you're running a game in the Hellenistic era. I am. What do you tell your players about why they can't have maps? Because I bet your players are going, uh, didn't maps start like in uh, in the Babylonian times? We're after that. Can't we have our good maps? Uh, the answer uh, to Jason's question is uh, yes, but. Uh, maps did not exist in the sense that you could not go down to a map store and buy a map. The average person went their whole life without ever handling a map. Uh, maps did exist, but they existed as basically the equivalent of scientific journals, that a map is a thing that was produced by a very, very vanishingly small subset, even of uh, the academy, of, of the philosophical uh, speculative academy. And the methodology for producing those maps uh, does not get finalized in the sense of map projections and how uh, lines of latitude and things like that uh, until after the Hellenistic era in the era of the great cartographer and geographer Ptolemy, who is uh, actually uh, first century AD or thereabouts. But before him, there are other attempts at making maps. We know that because, for example, Eratosthenes in his uh, book about uh, the world describes the possibility of uh, making a map from his uh, data. Other map makers uh, discuss the need to produce uh, maps from their uh, fr from their sources and to examine the the shape and state of the world. And of course, there were surveyors because we know that Alexander the Great brought surveyors with him on his invasions of Asia. Although they were providing. Uh, at the moment, sand table type military surveys and records. And so what a map would have looked like, the thing that you might have had if you were a merchant or someone who traveled over long distances, was not our familiar map, but a list of places and how far they were from each other. So they would have uh, more like the old AA maps where it was just a long string and you would write down the names of the places in order and then you would in between them say um, Gabai is a hundred miles from Rajay and so you go north uh, from Gabai and you get to Rajay and it's a hundred miles later and so your individual route was indicated by a uh, by a route map and at sea that route map is called a periplus and we have a number of paraploi from that era but those were you're sailing clockwise or counterclockwise around a sea be it the mediterranean the indian the caspian uh, the black sea all of those have paraploi that we know were made by uh, hellenistic or immediately post hellenistic cartographers um and it would be 
you sell such and such a distance and you come to this next port. And at this next port, here's what you can buy and sell. And here's what the people are like. And uh, here's what the prevailing winds are. And so instead of being a map, a, a drawing of the Black Sea with all the little cities labeled out around it, there is a, a descriptive uh, thing that you can turn into a map if you happen to have a very expensive parchment or a uh, very uh, uh, difficult to come by papyrus handy. You could, in, in theory, sketch a map out, but the sort of relationship of the of the person to the graphic depiction was uncommon enough that it uh, uh, that there there are in, in uh, there are some indications uh, that, for example, there are coins of Ephesus that have a relief map of Ephesus on the back, and you would you would have to assume that people would be able to recognize that's Ephesus when they look at it on their coin. Um, and we know from some of the uh, uh, Greek uh, uh, Hellenistic era writing that uh, there were some in some temples they would have a, a sort of a drawing of what the world looked like hung underneath Zeus's picture or underneath uh, Heracles's picture. You'd, you'd hang a picture of the world and say, yep, that's right. The gods are in charge of the whole world. So back off. But again, could you take that map home? Did you have that in your house? Maybe if you were super rich and obsessed with maps, you might've, but probably not. So the average person, even the average adventuring party in the Hellenistic era doesn't have a paper map where they can look at it and say, North, east, west, south. These are the directions we can go. They have perhaps an inventory or perhaps something that is drawn based on a parapolis, but is not. But that is very unusual. And we don't have evidence that those sorts of things were common uh, outside academic circles. And by academic circles, I mean literally the Library of Alexandria for about 300 years. Right. Those of us who live not only in a post-Ptolemy world, but a, a world with the printing press, we grow up looking at maps and then learning to translate that to our physical environment because of course uh you it's not actually a a natural innate way of perceiving the world so that even if you uh if you grew up in an era where you're you're not looking at maps all the time especially as a child and you see a map its usefulness to you uh is even less than you know today where you have to make that mental leap of okay here's the if i was a bird flying up above that because the uh, view from above, the God's eye view or the bird's eye view is inherently not a, a natural thing. It's something you have to translate back into. Okay, now what direction do I go in? Is this the road? Is, uh, are we on that? And so, uh, you know, even with maps, you, of course, you have to stop and ask the guy at the gas station if, in fact, you're coming to the mysterious village or not. And he tells you, A, not to go to the mysterious village because he's the guy at the gas station. But then... Yeah, yeah, it's down that way. Make sure you've got your will made out. But in a fantasy world, surely there's a determined way for uh, players to, to vex you and get themselves a hold of maps. For example, what if one of them has a flying familiar and can go fly overhead? Maybe maybe your players are going to do a traveler-like thing on you and go, you know what this world needs? It needs maps. And one of us has a pet hawk that you can throw his consciousness into. And... uh one of the others of us can uh, make small amounts of any material, including paper. Maybe we should knock off this stupid Cyclops fighting business and uh, and go into the map business and, and become our own Ptolemies ahead of schedule. With, with something like that, I think the, the strong answer is yes, absolutely do it. And then you uh, have to go to where your hawk can fly. And guess what's where your hawk can fly? A bunch of guys with uh, mouths in their faces. 
No, not in their mouths, but their faces. A bunch of guys with, <laughs> mouths, guys in with their mouths in their faces. Oh, I can't imagine anything more horrible. It's a strange and mysterious world. Uh. Guys with mouths in their chests and uh, and feet coming out of their shoulders and and whatnot that are that are going to beat you up because the act of mapping is the act of exploration, and that's why uh, Ptolemy, for example, refers to a uh, a merchant named Mar- Marinus of Tyre, who himself refers to a merchant named Alexander, who at some point in the Hellenistic era sailed as far as modern day, possibly Cambodia, possibly Vietnam, maybe even China. And this guy, Alexander, uh, left a, a periplus, a report of how many days it took him to get to the various ports and very little useful geographical information. And so there is a great slap fight amongst uh, cartographers, among, uh, culminating in Ptolemy, about exactly how to fit Marinus of Tyre's observations about how far the eastern kingdoms are with Alexander's observations of how far it takes to sail to them and even what direction does the coast of the Indian Ocean go uh, or does or does the coast of Asia go and Ptolemy said it goes south uh, uh, Zeus said it went north, but Ptolemy wasn't going to listen to that foolishness. So uh, uh, even the greatest geographer of the world gets the direction of the coast of Asia wrong based on this kind of narrative information. So if the characters want to go in the map business, if they're going to map anything farther than 100 miles away, they have to walk to it. That's great. I'm all in favor of that. Right. Uh, but of course, players uh, don't want to have to make the maps. They want the maps already available so they can look at them and go, well, where do we go next? What do we do? And so there's the uh, disjuncture from the desire of players to have not only a map, but a very accurate, beautifully rendered uh, a map, perhaps available in poster size mm-hmm. uh, as, as merch from your local merch uh, store to aid them in visualizing the world. So there's what the players want and what would actually exist in world. And that's uh, quite different even up until you know, a good way through the Renaissance, like truly accurate mapping the way that you're used to seeing in a role-playing supplement uh, is is pretty darn new. And the uh, weirder and more confusing the map is, the more period accurate it is, and the more annoyed uh, many of the players in your group will be. Yeah. The um uh, the way that you get to a map, if you are in the Hellenistic era and you are an adventurer, is you have to know either a king or a geographer and the geographers work in a very, very small number of cities, Alexandria. There's a famous geographer in Sparta right around the time of Alexander the great. There's another one who might or might not have been in Rhodes, uh, where, um, Apollonius was born. And so we, we believe there might've been, uh, a, a geographical center there as well. So you have to know one of those guys. And then since they did produce maps, it's not at all impossible that you go to their their house and you have them order their scribe to draw you a copy of the map for X amount of money. And so in theory, you could you could, in fact, buy the best map available of the world uh, in Alexandria or in Rhodes or wherever. But is it going to be as useful and as uh, fast as even the map in your RPG campaign? Probably not, uh, because. It's going to be based on these sorts of, uh, a combination of these sort of merchant reports, uh, and travelers reports and the philosophical truths that these philosophers slash cartographers are embodying. So for example, we know, uh, from philosophy that, uh, people, uh, to the north and people to the south have different characteristics of us. So that has to be true on the map as well. The map has to demonstrate this philosophical truth. We know that the amount of earth is evenly spaced over the face of the globe. Uh, so that has to be true on the map that we draw. 
And whether or not that's actually true in the, in the physical world is kind of a secondary point. And then that goes over and above the notion of we don't have reliable calculations of latitude. So we don't actually know how uh, far anything is north and south. And we certainly, we barely even have the ability to calculate longitude. If the prime meridian on um, uh, Eratosthenes and Ptolemy's map, uh, if you draw it on a proper map, goes, you know, all kind of zigzag because things they thought were due north and south of each other weren't. And if you have a world where there are uh, interested gods who interfere with the lives of mortals, uh, they may have reasons for wanting maps to be limited. For example, they may not want you to know that there's a mountain pass here where you can go and live in uh, another nation where there's a whole other pantheon of gods who actually expect much less from their uh, worshippers. Uh, you want to keep uh, your worshippers in your nice contained area where you can extract all of the uh, uh, rites and sacrifices from them. And uh, those gods over there, they don't even ask for, uh, you know, the ritual burning of cattle. They just, uh, you know, let you give the horns to the gods and let the worshippers feast. Well, we can't have that. We've got to maintain our our tariff system and prevent people from knowing that on the other side of those mountains is the, 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 the literal land of milk and honey uh, that we are not interested in producing because, you know, uh, the, the economics don't work in our favor. So, uh, we want to make sure that the maps, you know, have hideous dragons over there or, uh, better yet, don't exist so that you don't know that there's a, a better place to go to or a place where you could open up or, if, you know, the gods could simply be concerned. Well, if they open up trade, those other more interesting, sexier, cooler gods, their worship will be imported into our empire. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, rather uh, gray and feckless, uh, less interesting gods uh, bound by a strict, boring moral code. Uh, we got to keep those other sexy gods while at bay. And so there could be um, all sorts of different magical, mythological reasons why uh, maps are restricted. And then the act of being a mapper becomes even more fraught because, uh, you know, they'll let you get a little way, you know, encountering the guys with mouths in their chests. But once you get too close to that pass, then then the big time divine artillery rains down on you because uh, well, I, you're not mapping that area, man. We do not want that mapped. Right. There's a forbidden zone that you're not supposed to go beyond. And of course, even the medieval maps draw things like Alexander the Great's wall, uh, where Alexander the Great put a wall up there because you're not supposed to go there and visit Gog and Magog because they're evil. They're full of demons and, and werewolves and whatnot. And it's bad news. Uh, and you especially don't want to go with an accurate map to the land of the werewolves have the map fall into the hands of the werewolves, and then they know uh, to come and get you. So, Where the land of the tasty people yes. with barely any mouths exactly. anywhere near their faces are. Right. So a- another possible uh, plot hook here is uh, the the last group of idiot adventurers uh, got killed in the land of the werewolves and left the, uh, the one of three accurate maps in the world is now in the hands of the werewolves. It's now your job to go and get it back. Uh, of course, killing <laughs> as many werewolves as possible. Uh, uh, during your uh, quest. Um, now I see from my map that there's a, uh, up ahead, there's a gas station, and then there's a commercial, and then on the other side of that, there's a, an unknown segment. I think we'd better go explore and find out what that segment is.
And what happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fa- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Sit in the luxury box at LARP Bowl Stadium with such Patreon supporters as... Michael Fox. Kevin Roy. Derek McMullen. Jake Moss. And Jeremy Forbing. The chatter of IBM Selectric keys and the gurgle of mid-priced bourbon into a jelly jar announced that once more we are here at the scribal feet of podcasters Ken and Robin to learn how to write good. And mostly to Robin, of course, because Robin does more good writing. Uh, and Robin has picked, as he often does, our topic. In this case, the topic of word clusters. And at some point, a word cluster is a valuable stylistic device, and at some point it becomes annoying as hell. Where is the difference? Robin, help us out. So a word cluster uh, is just that, uh, a spot in your uh, passage of text. And in this case, we can be talking not just about fiction, but about the uh, creative imaginary fiction of writing role-playing material. Uh, so it, it's a passage of text in which the same word is clustered too closely together so that it the the proximity of those words uh, stands out. Uh, this is particularly a concern in the English language, which because uh, our language is a combination of three different languages uh, that uh, fought each other, conked each other on the head, then went out to dinner and, and decided to combine themselves. And then ever since then, uh, English has been roaming around the world, uh, importing new words as well. Uh, we have lots of synonyms. And so... In other languages, uh, you may be uh, writing in uh, the necessity or possibility of word variance is not as great because there are not as many synonyms for things and therefore not the expectation. But uh, English is full of synonyms, and so you're expected to uh, change things up. And so what we're going to talk about is uh, when you want to do that, when it's okay to repeat words. But before we do that, uh, I just thought I'd lay a little passage on you that so far has word clusters in it, just in case you haven't heard. Now, verbally, uh, hearing something out loud, we have a much higher tolerance for word clusters because when people speak extemporaneously, they, by definition, repeat themselves a lot and sometimes repeat entire phrases, and it doesn't stand out when you hear it the way this would if you were reading it on the page. But uh, this is an example if you're not getting the concept. So, since the revolution, vampires have altered their relationship to Carcosa formerly accustomed to a steady stream of Carcosan energy in exchange for fealty to the regime, the closing of the gates leaves them scrambling to reorient themselves to the old Telluric system. 
On the plus side, legendary vampires no longer have to subordinate themselves to Carcosan nobles or Castaean officials. To their detriment, texts on Telluric magic remain mostly locked in European vaults, and vampires don't like to fly over water. So, there are two words that are repeated a little too often in that passage, uh, vampire and variations thereof, and Carcosa and variations thereof. And so, uh, as you are hitting a passage of your text, I suggest to you that uh, when you are revising is the time to worry about word clusters. Uh, as you spot words uh, nestled close together, you then look for uh, different uh, ways of putting things. So, in this case, you would try to restructure your sentences so that you're not saying Carcosa too much and you're not saying vampire too much. Unfortunately, these are exotic words that uh, stand out. If you're writing about vampires, you're going to have to use the word vampire a lot anyway. So in Knight's Black Agents, the uh, the word vampire, uh, if you did a word uh, total search, which is something you can, you can create a word cloud of your document, uh, and if you see the word vampire gigantic in your word cloud, but your book is about vampires, okay, that's fine. But even so, you want to, you know, throw in a, you know, a bloodsucker or, or, you know, the lords of the dead or, or what have you. And uh, same with Carcosa, you might want to say, you know, a white sky energy. And so part of setting yourself up when you're creating a fictional world, whether to use that in uh, uh, prose or fiction or in a role-playing setting, is to give yourself synonyms for your uh, often used or made up terms. And so that will help you start to create that text variance uh, and enable people to uh, feel more of a, a sense of uh, rhythm. So Ken, how attentive do you feel that you have to be when you're writing uh, role-playing prose to word clusters? Well, you should always, I mean, look at your paragraph, uh, like you say, visually and say, Goodness me, the word vampire or battle axe or whatever it is, is showing up an awful lot. But at some level, the job of a role-playing text, uh, especially a rules text, is clarity. It has to literally say, this uh, potion works against vampires. It, you can't say this potion works against bloodsuckers because then some players like, well, does it work against leeches? Does it work against um, uh, my ex-husband? What's going on? And you have to say, no, 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 we mean vampires when we say vampires. When you're doing sort of descriptive text about a place or about an event, that's when you can maybe introduce some alternative uh, phrases. And, and that's where and that's the place where you can then introduce those synonyms in a natural appearing way so that you don't have to suddenly just start saying by bloodsuckers, of course, I mean, vampires, you can say. You know, um, the, the, you know, the Lord of the Vampires, um, uh, Strahd, or as he is called, uh, by the Boulder Vistani King of the Bloodsuckers, blah, blah, blah. And then you can, now that you've introduced that, you can start using that wherever the Vistani, uh, perspective might be valued. Or you can have another version, you know, you could say, you know, uh, greatest of the undead. You can have all manner of things that you introduce in these, uh, paragraphs, but the paragraphs exist to provide knowledge also of who would use that phrase and why would you use it and where would you use it. And that knowledge might be implicit where you just sort of use it that way and hope the reader catches on, or you make it explicit as I did in the example, as the Vistani say, blah. In a, in a role playing game, you also have the advantage of being able to have a stat block somewhere. So you can say, you know, Clan Nosferatu, also called, um, uh, the rats, the, the sewers, the, um, uh, the hideous, the, the, the malformed, the, the maskers or whatever. And then you can use those terms throughout the book because you define them all in the stat block somewhere. 
that's the advantage that a role-playing text has over a novel or uh, another piece of fiction where you would have to, that would seem forced to suddenly describe a bunch of nicknames. If you've done it in a, in a stat block or a place where the reader is expecting a bunch of information presented with no connective tissue, you can then do it in the more conversational portions of the text without uh, any sort of strained artificiality. There are different categories of words that bear more or less uh, strain when you use them a lot. So, for example, simple descriptive nouns like table or chair or knife or gun, the reader is not going to trip over the fact that you're saying he pointed his gun at uh, at Biff and then uh, holding his gun in his hand, it kind of quivered. You might say, you know, firearm or weapon, but very often that then becomes confusing because if you are trying to create a mental image in the reader's mind of uh, simple actions uh, involving particular objects, you don't actually want to keep synonymizing that uh, because the reader then has, oh, weapon, is that the same? Is that also, do they mean the gun? And so the reader is going to uh, accept that, whereas uh, descriptive words, uh, adjectives or adverbs, it's going to be much more apparent to the reader if you, uh, you know, say uh, he grinned impishly and you even if you say impishly three times in the course of a 90,000 word novel, that might still trip the reader's attention because it is a much more colorful, resonant and yet also uh, rarer word. Uh, and it is a, an abstract and sort of judgmental word where you're uh, going to uh, reveal that you have a mannerism. And the example there is, is Lovecraft, of course, who gets, you know, dinged for using ridiculous adjectives all the time. And he certainly does, but he doesn't use the same ridiculous adjective all the time. But people trigger on squamous and rugos and cluster them to their art, to their, to themselves as Lovecraft words, even though Lovecraft only used them to mean scaly or rough. He doesn't use them just throughout the whole, the book, if you did a word cloud of Lovecraft, you know, knighted or dark is much more common than um, uh, any of the special Lovecraft words that we all imagine. He are. doesn't use Eldritch nearly as many times as you think he exactly. does. Um, and, and so the that's the you were talking about three examples at a 90,000 word piece. That's very much the thing. So if you're going to use a a very colorful word or even a, a very uh, colorful image. Uh, you can't overuse it, even if it's apropos. I think we've talked in a previous episode about poor Harry Turtledove having saliva flood into the mouth of his character approximately eight million times yeah. in the course of a novel. Uh, there's another, uh, there's a, an alternate history book by Eric Flint in which, because the characters are, um, uh, Scots Irish, uh, Eric Flint uses the word Scots Irish approximately 150,000 times, uh, in that novel. Uh, leaving aside the fact that it's a historical anachronism, it's also very visible because it's two capital words separated by a hyphen, and you see it over and over and over and over and over again, and he never uses borderer or Ulsterman or any of the other plantation or any of the other synonyms you might have for Scots-Irish because he wants to make very clear that his uh, alternate history is sociologically real based on real observed characteristics of the Scots-Irish population in America. But again... You, you you can have the best goal in the world, and the reader is just going to keep saying, "My God, we just we just left that uh, that word two paragraphs ago. Why is it still here?" Right, because uh, in a world where Scotch Irishness is the most important thing, people would have come up with a bunch of other terms for it. Right, uh, and and would use that in conversation, and uh, uh, and that's another uh, point is that uh, dialogue theoretically has a much 
higher tolerance for uh, clustered words because people really do cluster their words when they talk. And and you alluded to the fact that earlier, sometimes you're intentionally repeating things for effect. You're using parallelism or, or uh, creating a certain rhythm or, you know, starting uh, every uh, sentence in a particular paragraph with the word forever or what have you. So we're not talking about the intentional repetition of words, because presumably you know why you did that and you did it on purpose and it is supposed to register as such to the reader. Yeah. And whether it's annoying is a different question. Right. Whether, like any technique, it can be well executed or not, but it's not the mistaken unconscious technique of having mannerism words and phrases that you, uh, overuse. Right. And even if there's a simple, uh, noun that you use a lot, it may point to the fact that you're using a sort of a, drawing a, an image crutch. So, you know, a mouth flooded with saliva. Mouth is not a word that if you have to refer to someone's mouth, you're going to do that as many times as you have to. There's no synonym for mouth that is not more of a break with the reader's attention than just saying mouth again. His but the face fact gap, that you're flooded with saliva. <laughs> right. But the fact that you're continuing t- to use that all the time is a problem. So I noticed in my fiction at one point that I was using the word I a lot, and it's because I was overusing the a device of telling you who was looking at who or what their expression was in an attempt to convey emotion that I needed to uh, pull back on that rather. So the problem wasn't that I was using I simple word. Nobody's going to trip over that. He uses I 16 times, but uh, if you're referring, you know, 16 times to who's looking at who you might want to pull back on, on that as well. So it can also be an indicator as you, as you suggest can of, some other sort of uh, writerly crutch. Everybody's going to have mannerism words. Um, you may uh, do that on purpose, as you know. There are Jack Vance words, punctilio, which I've never <laughs> seen, in, uh, uh, which means a, a mastery of etiquette. Uh, it's not a word I've ever seen in the works of any other writer. It shows up uh, at least once, if not multiple times, uh, in most Jack Vance uh, uh, works, and that is part of the deal you make. Uh, with Jack Vance is that it is a world where people uh, say punctilio as often as they say um, mouth or butter. <laughs> Sometimes more often. Right. And the final bit of advice I would give is to uh, not beat yourself up over this. You should develop an eye to find your word clusters, but sometimes you just got to bite the bullet because every other possible synonym or way to reorient the sentence is weird in a more overt way than simply having the the word cluster. But uh, as I said, the English language is is rife with synonyms, and uh, 99 times out of 100 or more, you will be able to uh, adjust the the structure and and the uh, vocabulary of your sentences in order to eliminate uh, words that repeat all the time because you've got to make sure that you don't have too many words that are the same as the other words next to those other words, uh, which are next to this commercial. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set 
has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? It's time for us to venture into that most ill-defined of huts, the Elliptony Hut, where uh, there over in the corner is the uh, gray alien having kombucha with the Nordic alien. We look out through the window and there's the scream of the alien big cat in the moor. And this is a, a category of elliptony that may not be paranormal at all. But, but of course, elliptony is, uh, is the catch-all for weirdness that doesn't fit in other categories. Because this time we're going to look at a mysterious disappearance. And this is by no means the most famous mysterious disappearance in history. Ken, are there other famous mysterious disappearances that we uh, should look at in future segments? Oh, yes. There are many. No, did you want me to list them? Well, we've covered the mysterious disappearance of Agatha Christie in a previous segment. Are there other classic disappearances? We haven't talked about Ambrose Bierce. I think he's uh, relevant to our to our remit in many ways. Yes. And he mysteriously disappeared, although, as some will say, it's not that big a mystery when a very old man doesn't come back from revolutionary Mexico. But it's still famous and still great fun. So uh, Patreon backer Stephen Brandon sent us a link to a story in the uh, Washington Post from uh, uh, last middle of last year. And this is the story of an airman named uh, Captain William Howard Hughes Jr., who disappeared in 1983 and was rediscovered by the authorities and promptly arrested in June of this year. And uh, uh, Stephen then uh, throws out a number of possible suggestions as to what the uh, more Ken and Robin answer to the, the mystery of his disappearance could be. Uh, I clipped them off and have conveniently forgotten them since he asked them, because this is not uh, Ken and Robin answered questions that you've already answered, beloved Patreon backers. Uh, we're here to make up our own stuff rather than just say, yeah, you're right. That would be a short segment if we said, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah good idea. Well yeah, done. Sounds good. End of segment. Um, so, and, and uh, know that we think you've done well already. Yes. We don't have, you don't have to write in with a th- thing and, and present it to us. We know you've done well, Patreon backers. Exactly. So, the disappearance, as I said, was on July 17th, 1983. He was an Air Force officer stationed at Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico. Uh, he was supposed to go off to the Netherlands for uh, testing a NATO aircraft surveillance system. Uh, but instead, he just uh, he just vanished. And uh, on July 22nd, uh, it was discovered that he had uh, withdrawn $20,000 from 19 different banks in the Albuquerque area. And uh, that's when knowledge of the whereabouts of William Howard Hughes Jr. ended until uh, June of 18, when uh, authorities uh, looked into the passport application of one Barry O'Byrne uh, somewhere in California, not specified in the original news story. He was trying to uh, secure a passport. Problem was, there was no person named Barry O'Byrne, and it turned out that, yes, he was Captain William Howard Hughes Jr., and he was picked up for desertion. And the uh, official story uh, is that uh, he didn't enjoy being an Air Force officer and wanted to live a different life. <laughs> now, uh, we do not want to slander or malign 
this uh, this real life person. So I have to imagine a fictionalized version of Captain William Howard Hughes Jr. Uh, as we begin to imagine what the weirder possibilities behind uh, an airman's disappearance could be. So Ken, what uh, what came to mind for you? Well, the first thing that comes to mind when you vanish from the Air Force in 1983 is the same thing that came in mind uh, to the authorities, uh, to the Air Force Office of Special Inve- Investigations, that the fellow had defected to the Soviets, carrying with him his knowledge of uh, Air Force uh, technologies. Uh, in 1986, uh, there was an explosion, not just of the Challenger shuttle, but also of a French Ariane rocket in uh, a, a French Guiana. And they looked into uh, the backstory of our disappearing airman, and it turns out one of the things that he had studied at Kirtland was uh, self-destruct uh, procedures for rockets, and that maybe he'd carried the remote trigger system with him uh, to the Soviet Union and, and blown up. Uh, and allowed them to blow up a bunch of uh, space exploration things. Uh, when I look at Kirtland Air Force Base, I, of course, remember that Kirtland Air Force Base is one of the ground zero spots, as it is in New Mexico Air Force, uh, for the uh, work of Majestic 12, the guys who go around covering up UFOs and uh, dickering with aliens on behalf of the, hopefully on the behalf of the federal government, but possibly on the behalf of mad scientists uh, who lurk in underground labs in Area 51 and Dulce. And that since Kirtland is ground zero for uh, Majestic uh, alien operation, perhaps the fellow was abducted by aliens. I think that's a great thing that happens when you disappear mysteriously in 1983. And then if you come back in uh, Daly City, California, calling yourself Barry O'Byrne, maybe the aliens wiped your identity and you didn't know that you'd faked your identity, that that's what's going on. So when the Air Force uh, swoops in and arrests him in 2018, it's actually Majestic still uh, working the grift and covering up the fact that he was taken by the Greys to um, uh, some unknown destination and that they're trying to find out what happened to him. Was he taken off Earth to Zeta Reticulum? Was he um, given... Uh, extensive missions is the guy who showed up in California him or a, or a gray alien man bot or clone or man droid even, uh, who, who can say what might've happened, uh, in those intervening times? Well, in fact, uh, the, uh, fact that he was, uh, going to be stationed in Europe, I think points to uh, more details on this because on, uh, on July 17th, 1983, the, uh, date, uh, of his, uh, that he was supposed to travel, uh, to the Netherlands, uh, in Summer Court, France, there was a uh, an abduction episode where a, a luminous globe was uh, uh, flying around in, in France, and it paralyzed a witness and drew him into the air. Uh, he lost uh, consciousness and later was found wandering uh, like a robot. And uh, he uh, described interacting with small beings with pointed ears, and uh, he uh, experienced missing time. So presumably there was an investigation going on uh, or perhaps not an investigation, but rather uh, somehow uh, our mysterious uh, airman did actually wind up uh, in the Netherlands or maybe even in nearby France where uh, one of these globes uh, came by, uh, gave him the good zap, and then uh, teleported him back to Albuquerque to start withdrawing money from uh, their account because, uh, you know, aliens with pointed ears do not have easy access to currency. So I think <laughs> that it's that it's just a a very ornate uh, bank robbery scheme by aliens. Yeah, it's like uh, it's it's an ATM robbery, uh, but they mm-hmm. have more at their disposal. Right. Well, I, I think they probably also wanted. It, it isn't. He was working on an aircraft surveillance system. Well, yeah. Who uh, most of all 
does not want to be surveilled. It's the pointy-eared aliens who have the flying globe that paralyzes you. And, with and, a with a bad uh, gambling habit, so they need American money. Exactly. Yeah, that's the worst. Uh, if they're the aliens that are remote and above it all, they don't care if you surveil them. They laugh at that. But the gambling aliens, it's very embarrassing. Uh, another possibility, uh, the, the guy's going around to multiple banks, withdrawing multiple amounts of money. Um, in our, uh, in our universe of, uh, homunculi and duplicates and death fetches, maybe those weren't all the same guy. Maybe they were doubles, either doubles created by the aliens, doubles created by the CIA, doubles created by, um, uh, a weird fractal experiment. He goes into the basement of, um, uh, some weird majestic lab and gets split into a bunch of person, personae from different alternate histories and that all of them uh, are find themselves in this alternate history and are like, well, I have to get money. I'll go to the bank. And it turns out that's the bank that they had their account in under their old name, uh, or in their old past, in their previous past. So they're able to get money. And it's a whole bunch of different, um, uh, airmen, uh, from different alternate histories. And so they've captured one of them who was living under, uh, a fake name, but there's still, uh, an unknown number of them still scattered around. And maybe whatever force splintered them is now calling them together. And it, it wanted to bust them out and make a parallel processor out of a human brain so it can do some sort of dark ritual, uh, magic or scientific. Uh, you choose. Or it's just that that's the door to alternate history is there in, uh, uh, underneath uh, Kirtland Air Force Base or in Albuquerque somewhere. And, uh, that's the door that goes to alternate worlds. And if you can find it, you can get to any number of alternate 1983s or by now not alternate 2019s. Now, uh, listeners, you might be thinking, you gave us a UFO and an alternate reality explanation, but I wanted a ghost explanation. Well, uh, then we, uh, can then focus on the fact that, uh, this airman is a namesake for an even more famous aviator, of course, and that's the millionaire industrialist adventurer and uh, movie mogul, uh, Howard Hughes. Uh, we do not know where in California this d- disappearance occurred, so naturally he must have been drawn uh, to Hollywood, California, where uh, the Pantages Theater is haunted by multiple ghosts, including uh, the ghost of his namesake, Howard Hughes, who uh, presumably uh, is looking for, uh, uh, if not a new incarnation to possess, at least someone who can, uh, you know, do banking for him and other uh, activities in the mortal world. He has, uh, you know, he's run out of Kleenex boxes to put his feet in. And so uh, it could well be that... Uh, uh, it is a, a danger, of course, to have a similar name to an iconic figure, a figure who uh, in some ways uh, embodied uh, both Croesus and uh, Icarus. And so he has a, a power to draw quasi-Howard Hughes towards him, and uh, that could easily be the result of a, uh, uh, a sort of a long-distance uh, ghost-influencing operation. And so you could then uh, leverage that into a scenario where uh, someone else has a similar name to a, uh, a famous uh, ghost of someone of, of uh, mythic repute and is uh, becoming a, uh, an operated vessel for uh, that uh, psychically uh, numinous spirit. And I will point out that uh, Howard Hughes died in the air. He, uh, and, of course, being Howard Hughes, we don't know whether it was in the air from Acapulco to Houston or from the Bahamas to Houston, but it was in the air somewhere. So maybe if you die in the air, and especially if you are a famous uh, aircraft engineer and weirdo, uh, your ghost is uh, trapped uh, below the uh, Van Allen belts or whatever, below the, the, the heaviside layer. And so 
when an airman with your same name gets on a plane to go to the Netherlands, you can possess them. And then it's not so much a ghost thing as it was actual Howard Hughes is back and up to activities. Although one certainly hopes he would have been up to bigger and better things than living under a peaceful assumed name in Daly City, California. But maybe ghost Howard Hughes is like all that crazy stuff I could leave it behind well, with my whole body. All he needed was like a VHS copy of Ice Station Zebra and he was good. Yeah. And, and, and enough, um, uh, chocolate walnut ice cream to keep him happy. And that's maybe what he had. And, uh, when you die in the air and you're an, an iconic figure, fortunately you get to, uh, your ghostly incarnation is the idealized version of yourself. So if you go to the Pantages and run into the ghost of Howard Hughes, he's the Hollywood era Hughes, uh, dressed in a snappy period suit. And looking all handsome, like uh, rather doesn't than doesn't have the, long fingernails and um, uh, and germ phobia. Yes, exactly. And so uh, that ghost may be, you know, when he possesses you, he may be trying uh, to get you to go and find Jane Russell rather than trying to get you to contribute to the Nixon slush fund. Which <laughs> you know, it's it's funner to fail at the first one, I would think, than the second. I think so, and um, uh, and more noble. Uh, th- though the possibility that um, uh, the vanishing. Of, of this guy is connected to some sort of shady political action. I suppose we could, we could throw that up, right? That there's some sort of nebulous conspiracy going on, uh, in 1983 that he stumbled on and he goes underground to fight them. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe William Howard Hughes Jr., uh, because of his access to Roswell technology or the spirit of Howard Hughes who informs him, like, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the old scientist in Firestorm body when he when he talks to him and gives him helpful advice the first time William Howard Hughes gets in a plane and flies up maybe it was in 1976 maybe that was at the moment of Howard Hughes's death he snaps into the body of his uh of his uh namesake and then is telling him what to do and he's that's why he's got 19 different bank accounts already even before he vanishes and so he's been investigating, he's been underground investigating some conspiracy that goes uh, all the way to the heights of the Reagan administration or all the way uh, to the bottom of Majestic 12 or, or some other set of circumstances. We have very little uh, that we need to go on so we can go anywhere. Right. It, and, it could be that he's, uh, when he was contacted by aliens, he was able to break contact and that he's actually been deep cover uh, as a double agent. And that the, he's still been run by the Air Force all these years, and that the uh, the arrest over the passport thing is actually just the, the cover for finally bringing him uh, in from the cold. Bringing him in, yeah, bringing him out of the cold. So, uh, but that's obviously not going to be in the court documents. No. So uh, I'm I'm sure uh, the, the the story of him just not wanting to be in the Air Force anymore. Uh, yeah, sure. That's that's definitely officially uh, the story, which means that it's definitely officially. Uh, the end of this episode of Ken and Robin talk about stuff, but never you fear, we'll be back a mere seven days from now to talk about a bunch of different but quasi-related stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagam. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent this podcast from mysteriously disappearing alongside such Patreon backers as... Josh Borlase. Yuri Horneman. 
Martin Rundqvist, Brian Thomas, and Yaj from Edinburgh. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Our latest shirt is You Don't Get Original Theories by Following Basic Logic. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.